This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We've got a great program again today. We'll talk with our friend Ted Malik. He's got a new piece up uh, in just a moment. And we also will check in uh, uh, with our friend, my friend, Michael Volpe who is uh, the tagline on his Substack, which is where he publishes a lot of his stuff, is um, he takes on causes no one else will. That's basically the summary. I'm not saying it well, uh, but it's true, especially around the family courts and how the courts have been uh, dealing a blow uh, to we the people. It's uh, very interesting. So we'll talk with Michael Volpe about uh, so he has a modest proposal, he calls it, of what to do and how to uh, address some of the problems. So we will get to that. And uh, But first, what you need to know today. I want to point you to this memo from David Brock. So David Brock is a longtime uh, left-leaning character. He runs an en- entity called Media Matters, which is a, a 501c3, I think, uh, which is an organization that's supposed to be talking about the truth, but it mostly just attacks um Republicans. That's kind of the MO of that group. Um, they don't uh, ever take on Democrats. They are, um, uh, you know, they're just out there attacking Republicans. And so every now and then they'll take a Democrat on who happens to depart from the orthodoxy of the Democrats. So he's known for that. He was actually a, a political hitman uh, against the Clintons back in the day. And then he switched sides and he's been making a, a huge living being a, an advocate for the left uh, in this media matters and other stuff. Well, he's got a memo. And it's it's dedicated to interested parties from David Brock from October 25th. I mentioned this the other day, but the memo, which is up online on social media, the subject is Facts First USA, colon, a SWAT team to counter Republican congressional investigations. Now, besides the fact that he goes through... Uh, a history of, of the GOP scandal machine attacks. That's what he calls it. And it's silly. I mean, he, he goes basically goes through and says, you know, all these unfair attacks, including uh, Fast and Furious, Solyndra, other stuff. Well, all those things seem pretty important. But the, the meat of this is that he talks about that there are key Republican House committees. And remember, he wrote this right before the election. He's saying we're going to lose the House. And when we do, there's going to be key House committees that have oversight and the ability to investigate. Those committees are Judiciary Committee, the Administration Committee, Oversight Committee, Intelligence Committee, uh, Energy and Commerce Committee, and the Foreign Affairs Committee. Now, there's a lot of those are there are a lot of those are a lot of the committees that exist. Basically, all the committees could do some investigating if they sort of have uh, jurisdiction. But here's where it gets interesting. Uh, David Brock is pitching for money to make sure that he can fight back and attack the people that are leading this, and then he goes on to say. The anticipated areas of congressional scrutiny are Hunter Biden. Okay, I think people understand that. The Afghanistan withdrawal. Well, that was a disaster that led to many deaths and lots of billions of dollars. Border policy. Obviously, it's a disaster. COVID um, and what went on with Fauci. And then the Department of Justice investigations. Now, into Garland and the choices. Those are pretty broad descriptions, but it seems to me that that's sort of right. And maybe more importantly, he's sort of trying to predict and also direct what people should look at. Because as far as I'm concerned, the thing that he's missing is massively is the corruption around, say, uh, 2020's election, the Zuckerbucks the corruption around some of the systems that have to do with the elections that are federal. Um, he hasn't said comment on that. 
And my point here is that he's trying to distract and say, these are the things they're going to focus on. Um, and I think he's also the audience. If the leak didn't happen, he knew it would leak. He knew this memo would get out. But then he goes on and he says the capacities required for the effective pushback. Now, this guy's made millions of dollars. I, I think it's him that's made it. I'm not sure. Um, but he goes on to say um, that he and, he and so he raises this is a money pitch. And he, he goes and he says um, the uh, um, the the team in formation includes Maria Cardona, who is a longtime political sort of operative and Latina. That's Latino. That's a big deal. Right. He's going to show that David Jolly, who was a never Trump Republican, David Brock. OK, Michael Teeter. He's the managing director of the 65 Project which is the 65 project is focused on destroying the lives and livelihood of people who are uh, in the law. The 65 is lawyers who were active in fighting back against uh, what they perceived as problems. And then uh, Melissa Moss is a political operative. And then there's all these others, but this is a pitch sheet, but right there you can see the guy who's going to be the executive director is the same guy who is taken after People like Sidney Powell and others trying to destroy their lives. My point here is a couple things. What you need to know is this is happening and there'll be things like this and it'll be well-funded. They'll get millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they, they, he's showing his targets a little bit, but he's probably hiding some too. I'm sure he is. But what Republicans or conservatives or people should know is you can't fight nothing with something. Wait, I said that wrong. You can't fight something with nothing. <laughs> there you go. In other words, if this is what people are doing, it's it's going to work unless conservatives and and uh, Republicans push back. And so instead of having an initiative to fight back and defend the men and women who will be on the front lines of this state state, uh, excuse me, U.S. representatives, the RNC announces today they're forming a special committee commissions to study how to do better in elections headed by Henry Barber from Mississippi, who has been an insider hack for decades, making money off of the system. Now, you talk about grift. That's all this guy does is make money off of being connected to his uncle. I think it's his uncle that's Haley Barber. I was on the RNC with this guy. And, you know, he's a charming enough guy to meet. He's got a family, all that stuff. But it's a grift. And it's not serious. And it's anti-Trump. And while so... Our side, meaning in this country, we have two teams, one set of liberal Democrats, one set of more conservative Republicans. The liberal Democrats have said, we're going to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure to fortify the elections. We're going to raise tens of millions of dollars to make sure to attack the machine. The narrative machine will attack any Republicans that are investigating. And the Republicans say, I know. We're going to set a commission. We're going to study how maybe we might do better. Maybe we'll be nicer to um, uh, people uh, of, of color. Uh, maybe we'll do something for this group or that. If Trump proved anything, it's that what people really want is to succeed. They want opportunities for their families and themselves. School choice, jobs, income, low-cost energy. But what you need to know is the David Brock memo and our, our response, within days, within days, David Brock says we're going to form a SWAT team to fight for our side. And Ronna McDaniels announced that the RNC is going to have a com set of commissions managed by Henry Barber, who is nothing, not a leader of any kind, except that he's connected in his family and makes money off the system. That's what we've got. So when you sit back and say, how's this going to turn out? You can see how it's going to turn out. If that's the way you're going to engage 
in the battle over the future of the country by those choices, those positions, those uh, uh, ways to argue and succeed, I can tell you how it's going to fail miserably. All right, that's what you need to know. Let's take a break. We'll come back and talk with Ted Malik, and we also will visit uh, with my friend Michael Volpe. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back again. We're checking in with Michael Volpe, the investigative reporter and the writer who does uh, so many different things. And he sent me a, an email. I don't know. Was it, I think it was a follow-up to an earlier one, but um, uh, a about um, his on his Substack, by the way. You can read all of his stuff there if you go to michaelvolpe.substack.com. Uh, and the title is A Modest Proposal. A Modest Proposal. He is tapping into what I think a lot of people are concerned about, which is our family courts uh, being how to say, um, I think if you read some of Michael's stuff, you'll say flat out they're corrupt. If you are uh, maybe uh, less experienced with it, you'll say they seem to be broken. Um, And if you're naive, you would say, well, they seem to be uneven. Um, So anyway, Michael Volpe, welcome back to the program. How are you, sir? Good. How's it going with you? I'm doing fine. So, um, th- th- first of all, before it's a modest proposal to speed the process and reduce costs. I propose forcing courts to hold custody trials no more than year after filing. That's the op- that's the the the, the, the uh, title of this post. Uh, Michael Volpe investigates is the Substack, and that's the sub uh, title. That seems so obvious. I mean, you start reading and you realize, oh, wait, it's not obvious to anybody. Tell me what the state of play is, why that modest proposal would change things so dramatically. I I combine that with one other thing. And and actually, they do have these kinds of laws in certain states. But Mm -hmm. what happens in these child custody matters often is it just drags on and on and on. And it's one deposition, discovery. They're arguing about this, that, and the other. And the the child custody is like a a temporary order, and it never ends. And who's making out? The lawyers, if they've got court appointees like the guardian at litem, other people, therapists, they're the ones making money because they keep keep charging you over and over and over again. The parents are paying. So all all that money could go to the kid's college fund, other things. And I, I was I, I I had an epiphany, and can I read it? I, I was reading through a uh, a hearing that involved child custody, and so here's the lawyer. I was served with a reply declaration, not a supplemental declaration. So if there's a second declaration, I don't have that. The other lawyer responds, "No, there's forgive my freedom of language. It was a reply declaration filed October 24th in response to petitioner's pleading filed October 20th." I have no idea what that means, except <laughs> number number one, it clearly has been going on for a long time. And number two, there's clearly no end. And I, uh, the first book I wrote, it was uh, it's called Prosecutors Gone Wild. And it's about this guy, Chuck Panici. And he was extremely successful in life. And one of the reasons he was successful is he always set deadlines. And I remember Chuck once said he ran for mayor and other things. And he said, you want to learn when, when deadlines are important? Go run for office. You know when it's not important how many votes you 
can get the day after an election. <laughs> and this is this is sort of the same thing in the in the sense that without giving people a deadline, nothing ever gets done. If everyone knows that that no more than a year from filing, we're going to have a custody trial, then the lawyers, the parents, everybody will want to make a deal before then. If it if there's right. no time limit, right, nothing ever gets done, and then all the only people who make money are the lawyers. Well, so but and, Michael, Michael, let me interrupt for a second. The system that we're in, we're talking it state by state, county by county, but but the system broadly describing it has developed this way, right? I mean, when it would have mm-hmm. started, it might have been I don't know timely. And again, once you, I, I do this a lot to my listeners. Follow the money. You say follow the money. What is it going to indicate? Well, if you stretch out some, it's like probate court. Probate used to be okay. There's a will. You know who says they got what? What's the problem? Okay, that's it. Probate in the in the most straightforward situations can take years. And who makes money? The court system makes money. The administrator makes money. The lawyers make money. So the system has developed here. Who's against a proposal like this? I, I mean, I know your answer is the money makers, but is there a growing sense, even on your piece, we're talking with Michael Volpe, and his, it's called A Modest Proposal that Mo, Michael Volpe investigates his su- substack. There's a couple of comments down there, and one of the comments was, you know, the, the, the thing went on forever and allowed my my uh, ex to, to, to cherry-pick uh, evidence and, and mess with witnesses, and all people forgot what they knew. I mean, who's, who's against intuitively? I mean, no, I say it better. I know who's against it. Who's, is there growing a growing sense amongst participants that this should happen? The the litigants who I communicated with all like this idea. Some of them noted that in this state we have something like this, in that state we have something like this. I think one state was five years, which is ridiculous. There, there's no reason why you can't finish all of these things in a year or less. Lawyers are probably would definitely be against it. Judges, judges would be against it because it requires them to move the process along in a in a speedy manner. You know, criminal. Defendants have a right to a speedy trial. Parents who are at the mercy of the court as far as how often they see their kids, they don't have that same right. Why not? And can I mention the second proposal yes. that this goes with? Yes, please. This, I actually wrote this in a law. My friend has a website called Write Your Laws. It's called the Elaine Podlowski Act. Elaine is a very corrupt guardian item in Missouri. If you go to YouTube and search St. Louis Family Court Corruption, you'll see her and almost 40 of her friends. Uh, the proposal is to eliminate, to not allow the courts to, to make any of these appointments. No more guardian item, custody value, parenting coordinators. All they do is muck up the system. They make it more complicated. They increase the costs. They don't help. Never. You have these two proposals. What happens immediately? Parents are charged far less. Uh, the the case moves much quicker. And so some of you may be saying, but the decisions may be worse. Well, they can't be any worse <laughs> than they are now. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you um, may as well do it this way. Um, Michael Volpe is our guest. Uh, Michael, um, uh, my, Michael Volpe investigates his, his uh, substack, michaelvolpe.substack.com. Do a search. Volpe is V-O-L-P-E. Um, by the way, Michael, great tagline at the bottom of, of, of one of the uh, uh, of one of the things I was reading of yours where it says, uh, you, I give voice to the voiceless with true original reporting on topics the rest
rest of the media is too afraid or lazy to cover. I think it's really true. I salute you on that. So, okay, so the system is breaking. I hear, you know, Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm a relative novice, but I hear it more and more from people, both men and women, about how broken the system is. Again, I'm coming back to, is there political will? I mean, are there people who are in office or elected to office who will take this on and can, you know, it's like, um, it's like a, a bunch of other things that have lots of money surrounding it. The forces that are quietly wanting the status quo to either stay or expand in the direction of more money are, are much stronger than people realize. But are there some, is the movement going towards either reform, real reform, or, you know, gutting the system? Yes. Uh, the, there, there are actually several politicians. The most prominent is Minnie Gonzalez, who is a Democrat from Connecticut. She's been taking this on for about a year. Um, but there, there are actually politicians who are popping up uh, in in some states. And as I and I wrote this a few months ago, there's a, a, a handful but growing number of laws in various states. The most recent is called Peaky's Law, which would eliminate something called reunification therapists. They wouldn't go as far as I would. They just would eliminate this one specific court appointee. Right. But I have seen laws pop up or potential laws, proposed laws by politicians. Um, throughout the country, and there are uh, some politicians who are standing up. The, the most, pro- the most prominent used to be Nancy Schaefer, but she died over a decade ago, yeah. mysteriously. Yeah, but yeah. Minnie Gonzalez is the main one. Uh, she's out of Connecticut. Connecticut is a hotbed for family court CPS corruption, and she's helped uh, break a lot of it. Uh, she used to be on the Judiciary Committee where she challenged all the, the j- judges who were to be reappointed with a, a lot of their corrupt cases. But you are seeing it. It's slow. But, you know, what you said, I'm hearing more and more. A lot yeah. of people are hearing more and more from people because the people are rising up. But these are not things, you know, in a movie, this, you know, there'd be some grand event and overnight everything would be fixed. Right, right, right. But we're so not in a movie. In it reality, works, right. it takes time. Right. Um, uh, Michael Volpe is our guest. Michael, as the as you watched the um, the uh, uh, gr- growth of parents hacked off about education during COVID and then the vaccines and, and, and all these things, you probably thought to yourself, aha, people are re- recognizing that there's a imbalance in the government's ability to intrude on the relationship between parents and kids. And I think you'd probably add the next phrase, uh, uh, clause, and it's no, it's, it's, it's worse in family court than anywhere else. You think it's bad on health freedom, go into a family court. But so uh, um, are you seeing all that energy, school board races, county council races, is there, a, again, and more and more people, this is important, more and more men and women have to go through this and come out the other side frustrated. They may still not like each other, uh, a divorced mm-hmm. husband and wife, but they're really annoyed at the system, uh, a lot of them. Is, is that is that movement happening? Like, I mean, school board doesn't matter so much, but county council might or, or you know, in these big counties, uh, Fairfax County, Los Angeles County, you might get low income folks who are of a different demographic who say, you know what, I'm sick of this system grinding us down. I, I've seen it for at least four years. And, and as I said, you can hate big, big tech all you want, but Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, even LinkedIn has really helped because it it brings people together, number one. So people who have the same corrupt judge often find each other on Facebook. Number two, obviously, Facebook is a great way to share articles, other things. 
YouTube is is a great way for these parents to just put a camera in front of them, tell their story, and now their story's on YouTube. That happens all the time. Go go to go to YouTube and in their search bar do uh, CPS caseworker confrontations. You're gonna find tens of thousands. Hmm. So YouTube is helping people to learn that when caseworkers come to your home, they're often abusive, aggressive, coercive. Uh, simply by parents videotaping their confrontation with the CPS caseworker. So, yeah, I've seen it for at least four years. But, you know, as I said, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's growing. Peaky's law, even if it passed, I don't know how much it would help. But that's what that's basically what needs to help happen is more of these laws get passed in more places or get introduced. There's a law called uh, Michaela's law, which wasn't introduced. It was uh, it was developed by by a woman named Abita Tolu, who, who was a litigant in Missouri. That's another proposed law. That, that and That's crazy. In Missouri, not only do they have a bunch of these court appointees, but they basically have immunity from any kind of a lawsuit, no matter what they do. They can lie in court. They can lie in affidavits. They can do things that are clearly unprofessional and unethical. They can have ex parte communications, and you sue them, and they will just say, we have quasi-judicial immunity, and it's gotten rid of. Mm. And Avita found that out firsthand when she sued her guardian item, Elaine Podlowski. But uh, but the law is online. It's been written about. It's been talked about. You and I are talking about. These are the kinds of things that have to keep happening in order for these things to break. Does um, uh, Michael Volpe's our guest again? It's uh, michaelvolpe.substack.com. Uh, his uh, substack is Michael Volpe Investigates, uh, V-O-L-P-E. Um, Michael, is the um, is there are there leaders? This is going to sound crazy, but I, I, as I say it, I'm almost uh, rolling my eyes because um, yesterday I talked to Ron Kessler, the reporter, and he was talking about how a new FBI book uh, is a total fraud. It's a Yale law professor, excuse me, a Yale professor of history who wrote a book on uh, basically whitewashed everything that the FBI did especially hoover uh, and he said ed this isn't history this is just you know and his 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 uh pronouncement was then that the um was that the uh the reality was that the broken nature of the university system was the problem but so let me ask this I'm, i preface it with all that are there any is there anybody leading in universities in uh law schools or somewhere saying look at how poorly this is working look at the damage it's doing is there anywhere that's a beacon of hope in the coming out of the ivory towers there are, but everyone who I would name as controversial is a woman named Joan Meyer from George Washington, who most men think is a man. I don't know if man hater. Right? She she's beloved by certain segments of of people who follow this and absolutely hated. And uh, and and there are some people on the other side. I, I think Meyer, if you're talking about academics, is probably the most prominent. There are. Um, there are i don't know if it's if it's significant but it, you know this is all like boulders you know it right. it starts with a few and it grows right. so there definitely are you know part of the problem is like even i'm controversial to some degree um it's hard if you talk about this enough to never have someone disagree with you on anything. And then, you know, immediately you become controversial because you said something that someone disagrees with. Right. Uh, so there are, but there, there's no one who is universally beloved, but you take strong opinions and, you know, these ideas, uh, in a sense, they're similar to conservative liberal ideas. You know, some people agree, some people disagree and very vociferously. Like, I think one of the first times we talked, uh, you had someone on 
who believed in 50-50 parenting. And I yeah. couldn't disagree more. Not, yeah, yeah. not that 50-50 couldn't work, but, you know, we can get right. into that. But those kinds of concepts are controversial and they, and they raise people's blood pressure. You, you know, you think the abortion debate is controversial in family court. There's a term called parental alienation and people are on the brink of killing each other when they debate that. And I've, yeah. I've gotten close to that when I've debated someone. Yeah. Uh, and these are very emotional issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's at the heart of, uh, it's a heart of living. I mean, it's a heart of, if you're, if you're being serious, it's at the heart of functioning. And especially if you're a man or woman of faith, you're like, this is the whole, um, you know, families and, and, and a mother and image and likeness of God. And what you're supposed to do as a father, as a mother, mm-hmm. uh, Michael, I'm out of time. Unfortunately, always helpful, always interesting. Michael Volpe, everybody uh, go to Michael volpe.substack.com uh also search for Vol- michael volpe on the substack v-o-l-p-e uh always interesting writing and as he said he gives voice to the voiceless with true original reporting on topics the rest of the media is too afraid or lazy to cover uh thank you uh michael we'll talk again soon okay thank you for having me all right we'll take a break everybody we'll be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in with Ted Malik. Our friend uh, Ted Malik is the uh, author of, the, 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 excuse me, one of the books that I just looked at the other day is Trump's World. He wrote that with Felipe Coelho, uh, and it, it's excellent. And also, he wrote a book called The Plot to Destroy Trump, and he's been CEO of the Roosevelt Group for decades and uh, a professor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ted Malik, welcome back. How are you? I'm very well. I, I seem to have stirred some question with my uh, demand for more morality in the financial services industry. That's right. So that's what the piece that's over at American Greatness is called FTX and the root of our financial crisis. And instead of just talking about whether crypto works or whether uh, there was irrational exuberance, I think that actually might touch on that a little bit. Your, your point is, hey, wait a second. There's something else going on here about morality, about ethics. Uh, first of all, Ted, um, when you started out in this in the business as well as in academia you know the cottage industry of business ethics seemed to explode in like the 80s before that did they just not teach in in business schools or in the high powered finance schools courses on ethics was it just assumed that you were ethical you know i think that's a general observation that uh, i mean gentlemen some gentle women very few you know, had come up through the right ranks and families and that they were going to be behaving decently. Uh, yeah, and then, then there were certain scandals and uh, the um, business schools reacted and they said, well, we won't teach just management. We'll have to give people some frameworks. It's mostly uh, in business school, it's, a, um, it's either a get-out-of-jail-free card or uh, don't do this, go this far. And you won't have to go to jail in the first place. So there wasn't even in business schools to uh, relate back to the question. There, there really wasn't much ethical thinking. All right. All right. So now, as, as the, your piece says, uh, a few uh, paragraphs in and now front and center comes FTX and you call it the Ponzi crypto exchange was fake from the outset. Now. Why did so many investors fall for it? I guess it's the same reason they fell for Madoff, right? But what is your sense of, of why they fell for this one? Yeah, well, the answer I say is, is disclosed by Michael Lewis, who is a friend of mine, worked on Wall Street at Solomon Brothers in the 1980s. 
he said it in his book, Liar's Poker, and then he said it later in another article. He said, after the fall, greed, stupidity, and really bad luck, how Wall Street did itself in. Uh, and his last line in that famous article was something for nothing. It never loses its charm. Hmm. Wow. Well, and, and so that's FTX and FTX. They um, they went for people fell for it. Um, it is so it broadly, Ted, is crypto the problem or was crypto just confusing enough for people that they didn't know that they did what they didn't know and they fell for it? You see what I mean? Yeah, no, I think it's the, the latter. I mean. Uh, crypto is, you know, it's not brand new, but a newer um, instrument. Fascinated some people, not many of them really understood it. Uh, what I'm shocked at is the long list. I've seen this list of 30 or more very sizable, consequential uh, venture capital firms, and I know some of them, and even their principals, who felt for this, who basically said, yeah, well, let's put some millions, uh, invest some millions, even tens of millions into this without kicking the tires, you know, without doing any due diligence uh, uh, and basically accepting their numbers without any audit. Right, right. We're talking with uh, Ted Malik. His piece is over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, FTX and the root of our financial crisis. So uh, then back to this. We now know what the FTX financial crisis is. We do know that the contours of this guy, Sam Bankman Freed's um, lifestyle, he was giving uh, lots of money to Democrats. He was giving lots of money. So he was giving some money to incumbent Republicans, too, we should say. Um, yes, but, he was. And, yes, and, he was. Yeah. Mitch McConnell amongst them. So let's let's say it. Uh, he was also spending lavishly on himself and his inner group and their um, per, uh, perverted sexual group activities. Mm-hmm. He bought uh, upwards of $300 million worth of real estate for people, including his parents, and no one looked the other way. And so the, the but and but again, a couple paragraphs down, you say, face it at the very root of our financial crisis is a moral vacuum, which can only be filled with true virtue. If that's true, Ted Malik, how do you, uh, you know, yesterday or the day before one of the a couple of days ago, I interviewed Ron Kessler and he basically described how a Yale history professor, Professor Gage, has written a book on the FBI and whitewashed all the stuff the FBI did in the in the Hoover era, just basically glossed over it. And amazingly. And my point is that um, we seem to have lost the uh, universities completely. So if it can only be filled by true virtue, where do you get that? How do you how do you inculcate that? It's sad that you have to ask me that question. <laughs> it is, I know. but <laughs> So the answer to that question, in short version, is you get it from all the intermediating structures in our society. You get it, first of all, from your family. You get it, secondly, from your educators and schools. You get it from your civic associations. And primarily, I would argue, in this case, you get it from your religious institutions. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact is, all of those have been... What could I say? Undermined. So I used to run into these students all the time when I was teaching MBA students, and they basically say to me, I don't understand what you're saying. I've never heard the word virtue. What does that mean? Hmm. Right. Right. There you go. Um, the uh, the the your book, it was is it doing virtuous business? Is that the title yes. of it? Am I getting it right? And it was made into a PBS documentary. So 15 million people saw it. It was it was overexposed. Yeah. Huh. Is uh, is is that um, 
I don't know. Is it catching on, Ted? I mean, do, do, is there a way no, that it's not catching on? Obviously, that's why <laughs> we have these scandals. Now, I would say two things. Now, we have a school after scandal, and I end my article saying that if we don't do more to fill the vacuum, then why just expect more of these scandals? They're more routine, more regular, bigger than the last one. On the other hand, as I have said and said this in books, uh, when I study companies, particularly small and medium-sized companies, some larger companies, those that have t- taken the time to really inculcate their corporate cultures around virtues, around decency, uh, they, they are very good and long-lasting, enduring companies that also very profitable companies. Capitalism is not the root of this evil and this tragedy, this sin, uh, whatever you want to declare it. Uh, capitalism is not about greed, as Michael Douglas made it out to be in the movie named Wall Street. Capitalism is about honest, fair brokering, about fair profits. So we shouldn't be attacking capitalism. We should be returning to the actual moral sentiments of original capitalism, as Adam Smith smelled them out. Um, we're talking again with Ted Malik and his piece, again, is over at American Greatness. Um, it's so much more than a, a description of FTX and the root of, and what the cri- the um, scandal gets to the root of it and, and, and points a, a path forward. Um, Ted, again, you you are you mentioned your documentary ran on PBS, the documentary of your one of your books. You were uh, at various times a lecturer. You've done, um, you know, TV appearances, all that kind of stuff. At this point in the high speed world of, of big tech and social media, is there a way you could envision? I mean, it's not a huge question, I know, but virtue, uh, not not virtue signaling the opposite. I mean, you, 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 ESG is a is a is a stupid yes. game that says. <laughs> As virtue signal and will reward you because we're corrupt too. But but as you point out, virtuous businesses can be more successful. It's an amplifier. That's the argument, at least. Is there a way that that can again be uh, uh, be um, brought forth as and and felt so that it's to an advantage and therefore people uh, embark on it because it doesn't feel like it now. Yeah. So I think we have to tell the story over and over again. We have to repeat it. Because it's this is something you habituate. It's not something you do once. It's not a vaccine. It's not something you get in a PowerPoint presentation. Right. You get inculcated in it. And uh, I think in, in our society at present, there's very little of that going on. So, um, yeah, it's very helpful to read things. And I've, I've certainly written lots of case studies. People like to read about real companies doing real things. And there are an endless number of those across every industry on every continent. I think it's very helpful to amplify those, particularly those that are, that, you know, that are performing well and, and, and based in these virtues. Um, and we have to point out those that are not, which uh, also exists. It's the other bookend. There are bad actors. Uh, we're talking with uh, we're talking with uh, Ted Malik and his pieces again over at uh, uh, American Greatness amgreatness.com. All right, Ted, we're to the end of the interview. What's next? Uh, we love uh, my listeners what's love next? to get. Yeah, the- yeah, it's always want to know what's next. So my next piece is uh, has an interesting title. It's called Lee Z for the RNC. I see. Okay. Okay. So um, that's a little code. You you yeah, have yeah, I, figured I, it out. I, I see it. I, you I, have figured it out. <laughs> you are too clever. <laughs> uh, everybody always says nice things about the host, especially at the end of the interview. All mm-hmm. right. Well, I know what you mean. I'm, I'll be interested as a former RNC member. Um, I know the math and I know I, mm-hmm. I will tell you there's only one oh. man in America, one vote 
in America that matters to make Ron McDaniel not the next chairman. And he's down and he's your old friend. He's down in Mar-a-Lago. If he doesn't weigh in to break that up, I just know the rhythm of that place. It's not filled with profilers in courage. It's filled with folks that will go along with the way it's going. So uh, I don't, well, maybe, I'm sure you'll address that and we'll talk about it next week. Okay. Thanks, All right. Sir. Thanks, Ted. Ted Malik, everybody. We will uh, maybe, by the way, maybe not next week because he gets his columns done so fast. It could be that we're talking to him in a few days. Go over to AmericanGreatness.com and check out his work over there. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, a constitutional attorney and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Heading into next week's runoff in Georgia, it's worth revisiting a moment from a debate between Senator Ralph Warnock and Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker pulled out a badge given to him by the sheriff of Johnson County to show his support for law enforcement. The media may have criticized Herschel for this, but the truth is that other Republicans should have similar badges as Democrats throw law enforcement under the bus at every turn. Headlines of mass killings are nearly daily, and police departments have been emasculated by the left. Violent crime has increased sharply, while progressives have been waging a war on our valiant officers in blue— who struggle to maintain law and order. As just one recent example, a mere 15-year-old in Raleigh, North Carolina, went on a shooting spree in a peaceful neighborhood that killed a dog and five people, including two veterans, one of whom was an off-duty police officer. The assailant was dressed in camouflage, as some teenage boys addicted to violent video games like to do when they turn their gaming into reality. Meanwhile, across the country in Stockton, California, an example of what appears to have been a type of profiling enabled apprehension of a suspected serial killer while he was hunting at 2 a.m. for another victim to murder. Sharp-eyed police arrested a man who was driving around dressed in all black clothing and appeared to be looking for a seventh random victim over the past few months. The man donned a mask around his neck and was driving in a wandering pattern after midnight in the city. All of this illustrates what good police work can accomplish if the left is stopped from interfering with their work. Progressives have objected to effective policing by insisting it is based on profiling and have blocked the stop and frisk policy that was so effective in reducing crime in New York City until liberals ended it in 2014. The simple reality is that Americans want to trust their local elected law enforcement leaders with the power to keep their communities safe. The collision of progressivism and law enforcement is the intersection at which progressivism becomes a danger to our families and our communities. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Our mission, clearly stated at phyllisschlafly.com, is to enable and mobilize grassroots activism on behalf of cherished conservative values. You're encouraged today to go online and read the goals we support and those we oppose. Then join us. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and come back next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Just got a couple of minutes. Let me uh, preview something for you that I plan to talk about next week. And that is, if you know the name Richard Vigory, uh, you know conservatism. He's been active in the conservative movement 
since I think about 1963. Um, he's in his late 80s. He's still going strong. He's the uh, he's the founder of one of the most important organizations. You might not even know the name of it because you have to understand the business to know the name, but it's called American Target Advertising. He pioneered direct mail advertising in his life uh, extraordinarily. He does fundraising for the Leadership Institute and Hillsdale College, but also a million others in between. And the thing about Richard Vagary is you wouldn't know a lot of who he helps, but it's everybody. And the late Phyllis Schlafly, my boss, used to talk about Richard as one of the founders of the conservative movement, one of the 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 uh, people who allowed the the movement to grow because he got gas in the in the gas tank. And uh, extraordinary guy. Well, he's written. He's a writer too. Like all these uh, great leaders, he's a writer as well as, and he's written memos forever. But he's written a book called Go Big. Go big. And I talked to him last week. He told me the book is done and he sent me a copy. I got it in the mail today. I started to read it because it's it, it catches my uh, everything about it is is in my wheelhouse. I, I love Richard Vagary, his career and his life. I, I, I'm interested in the topic, um, but it's called Go Big. The Marketing Secrets of Richard A. Vagary. How conservatives can win with bigger and more organizations, donors and money. Fascinating. So I'm warning you about it. I'm telling you about it because Go Big, Richard Vigory, you can find where they sell books, but I'll also review it in more detail in the coming weeks because you need to know about it. So there you go. We'll get to that. Go Big with Richard Vigory. Amazing man. Uh, such a try. It was such a privilege to talk to him last week and catch up. It's been a while, and uh, I plan to go uh, and visit with him more uh, as soon as I'm done with the book so I can talk about what he's written. So, all right, Richard Vigory, great stuff. All right, thank you, as always, to Noah Dingley, our great, great uh, producer, and uh, also Ryan Hype for helping. And we'll be back tomorrow with Ted Martin here on the Pro-America Report. See you then.